Good morning. Hey, we're super glad you're here with us here at First Christian. We're glad that uh, you're with us, especially if you're new with us. Hey, we're glad if this is your thousandth time, um, but we're especially glad if you're here and uh, you're new to First Christian. We hope you sense the Lord's presence here and that uh, you sensed the spirit working in the lives and hearts of people around you. So we hope you were warmly welcomed in a way that sort of, you know, shows that, that demonstrates that. Uh, this is a place where the Lord is moving in hearts. And so we're glad you're here to join us uh, this morning. We believe God's word changes lives. And uh, we're in the last of five weeks. There you can go and hear me now. Thank you. Can you hear me now? Yes, I look like that guy, in case you're wondering. (laughs) Why should that be funny? Thank you for pretending to laugh or something like that. Hey, we're in the last of five weeks in Lamentations, so we're going to be in chapter five of Lamentations, uh, one through five, and then 15 through 22. We're going to do the bookends of that chapter, the beginning and the end. Uh, A lot of good stuff to continue to learn from Lamentations here, so we want you to join us for that. We're going to be reading that passage in just a minute, so you'll want to have a Bible handy. If you need a Bible, uh, there are some Bible, we're calling them for now Bible concessions people. I know that sounds weird, um, but we'd love for you to have a Bible if you don't have one handy, um, because how we do sermon time here uh, is sort of helped by having uh, your nose in the text to follow along. Uh, So we're going to be reading that, Lamentations 5, 1 through 5, and then uh, 15 to 22 in just a minute here. Um, Don't be bashful. Put up your hand if you need one. Piping fresh, hot word of God right here. (laughs) Thank you for laughing at that for the third week in a row. Those of you who have been here, my repertoire is small. Hey, I want to cover a couple things before we jump into uh, reading the text and then some prayer to sort of get our uh, hearts right before we study the word together. We're experiencing some good challenges uh, here at FCC um, lately, um, and they are real challenges. Um, And and we're asking you to help a little bit at this point um, in the area of worship capacity, worship seating. Um, by helping us maximize our seating capacity. Um, Last week during second service, uh, one side we have 11 open, and then on the other side we had 12 open, which means that we had uh, just under 90% full capacity during second service. And, uh, and, and guess where <laughs> most of the available seats, good job people, typically are front and center, yeah. Um, so what we began doing last week is just kind of saying, arrive early, sit up front, and toward the center of each row uh early front and center that's a way of us remembering that the most available seats for people coming in are on the aisles and in the back Um, so us building capacity here is about making available more spots in the back so we're saying arrive early sit up front and uh, and center good job front row people second row people well done the rest of you are not losers i promise i'm not not trying to Say you are, but, you know, come a little early. No. Um, Early front and center, though, um, to be serious, early front and center is not just about seating capacity. Obviously, it is that. It's about most efficient use of space. Um, But early front and center is about making more room so more can come and hear the gospel and come into contact with Jesus. Are we preaching yet? Yeah, I don't think it's a stretch to say 
that early front and center is about helping people find and follow Jesus. That's, that's our motto. That's, that's who we are. That, that's what we do. We are a congregation. We are people. We are marriages. We are families. that are about helping people find and follow Jesus. And so building some of that capacity is for that purpose. So please come early and maybe after a few weeks we'll give you t-shirts or something like that or a badge that says, I came early. Or hand out mints or something like that. I mean, probably the extent of it is going to be, hey, good job, people. That's about it. Hey, one more thing before we jump into Lamentations 5 uh, and get into our message today. I'm going to say this sort of real briefly. Um, and, and this is the kind of thing that we usually reserve for staff meetings, elders, deacons, staff, life group leaders, team leaders, that kind of thing. But we want to kind of open that up to you and let you know a little bit of what's going on on Sunday mornings. Um, Uh, this past summer, and we're sort of learning to put together the bike as we ride it. Um, I think we're on the bike now. We could only see that there was a bike. We weren't even on it before. So we're putting together the bike as we ride it. Um, and, and there's some changes we're, many, we're needing to make on Sunday morning with our positions. Uh, long story short, one of the, the things we're trying to do is turn Sunday morning from a place that's about consuming, where you sit passively for an hour, to a place where it's about contributing. That's a big difference. We're trying to say, attend one, serve one, as the way we verbalize that with this lovely graphic up here. Looks good, doesn't it? Yeah, I guess we made it. (laughs) Actually, if some of you all want to do some graphic design for us, that'd be helpful. Um, Attend one, serve one uh, is a major part of our growth here at FCC. And it's a gargantuan mind shift for those of us who grew up going to church. Are we preaching yet? Sunday morning being a place that's not just about passive consumption, but becoming a place where we can grow and contribute is a total mind shift for how we think about uh, Sunday mornings. So we're talking about attend one, serve one, serve one as a way to intentionally uh, begin to, to make that a part of our process. So we're implementing a pretty big change about how we do this. I want to tell you about. So the quick context is that we schedule every single Sunday morning position with our back end software. All those positions have job descriptions. Uh, those who serve on Sunday mornings, they check in on an iPad in what we call volunteer headquarters. VHQ is back here. It has coffee and tea and granola and today donuts and other fixins and homemade goodies every week. It's really a legit process. Not just the food, but the positions and the scheduling and through the iPad. Um, but I tell you that because we've had a little bit of trouble getting the right people into the right place with the right training on Sundays. So, uh, so we are putting together what we call the guest services position. We're going to show you this on screen right now. Thank you. The guest services positions combines a whole bunch of different roles. And I'm not going to list all those for you. Um, But if you want to serve on Sunday morning in guest services, it may mean you do one of these at first as you're getting your feet wet. It may mean that you, after a little while, can do three of these, four of these, 
five of these, depending on what the service leader assigns you to for that day. I hope that makes sense. I know it's a lot of information, especially if you're new and you're like, I went to a business meeting today. This is the kind of thing that helps us make Sunday morning happen in a way that helps people find and follow Jesus. So just FYI, that's going on behind the scenes. What it means is, for example, just to use a couple examples, uh, something like um, offering collector and communion server used to be positions that we considered something that could fill the whole hour. Um, We're changing that. That's all different now. Uh, That can be coupled with a couple other things that mean then you're serving the whole hour. Just as an example, um, it's starting to get confusing and people are like, deer in headlights, so move on, Scott. So um, just FYI, some important structural changes that will help us make uh, Sunday mornings happen more smoothly. Let's get to it by reading together Lamentations 5, 1 through 5, and then 15 through 22. The beginning and the end of chapter 5. Let's go ahead and read this and then we'll pray. It says this, verse 1. Remember, O Lord. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We've become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Which sounds like apparently they lived in America. Just kidding. This is not a joking around passage. I'll explain verse 4 a little more later. Uh, Verse 5. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. Jump down to verse 15. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Let's pray, friends. Father in heaven, we come to you today. aware of our need for you to speak to us. And we ask that you would use our time such that you would get glory. Such that you would increasingly be the center of our lives as a result. We come to you keenly aware of our faults, of our limitations, of our foibles. Lord, we come to you aware of our sin. And we ask, Lord, in the middle of our need, 
but you would show up. Take us, Lord, to the place where we understand that unless we see our need for your help in our lives, we are literally hopeless. For we stand on nothing but your grace to save us. Take us to that place today. Renew us. Refresh us. Give us an understanding of what you're doing in the world and in our lives so that we would leave this place changed, that we would leave this place with a greater sense of your call on us, of our purpose in life, that we would understand that our identity is in you alone, Lord. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. When I was in high school, in youth group, I was probably a senior, and we were at the ski resort for a ski trip. And so there were probably 40 to 50 of us on this trip, and uh, we were on the way home in the church bus, um, on the way home in the church bus, when somebody from the back of the bus <laughs> yelled really loudly, Hey, wait, stop the bus! And, and then everybody turned back to look at this person in the back of the bus and realized that this person was saying what we never understood until that point, which is, we had forgotten Matt. Matt was apparently back on the ski slopes by himself, and we were about 10 minutes away from the ski resort, and we had forgotten Matt. We found him uh, on the ski slope by himself just a few minutes later, but we didn't realize it until that person said... We'd forgotten him. Now, listen, we weren't being malicious. It was just an accident. It was an accidental forgetting, right? Like somehow Matt got disconnected uh, from the group. Somehow he lost track of time, in part because he was a better skier and he was doing Black Diamond stuff and the rest of us were like, bunny slopes, thank you. Uh, so he was accidentally forgotten. No harm, no foul, no big deal. He was on the ski slopes. We were 10 minutes away and somebody said, Hey, we forgot Matt. But what if, what if being forgotten isn't just a description <laughs> of the bus accidentally driving away? But being forgotten is a description of how you feel in life. What if you feel like on the inside, like your inner voice that tells you who you are? What if the message wasn't just forgotten on the slopes, but forgotten in life? That's a whole different feeling. That's a whole different ball game. That's a whole different matter altogether. It is no stretch to say that as we look back on much of our lives up to this point, many of us feel in some form or fashion to some extent here and there like somebody forgot us, but it wasn't an accident on the ski slopes. It was forgotten on purpose. That's tough. That's a whole different animal altogether. And it's the natural consequence of the shrapnel of sin, the sin done against us, the sin we commit, and that's an inner voice that we learn from the sin of the world around us. The sin committed against us. The sin we commit. It's that kind of inner voice that tells us lies we believe about ourselves. 
lies driven from the shrapnel of sin around us. They say that a child's inner voice is formed and fashioned by the way the parent speaks. Which means I know that a lot of us carry an inner voice that says lost cause, hopelessly past help, abandoned, forgotten, not worthy, not worth my time, forgotten. That kind of feeling that we all understand at some level is what the people of Lamentations felt in chapter 5. You see, they had experienced total collapse of everything they held dear all around them. Their city, their temple, the entire system of worship and sacrifice through which they had their relationship with God, everything upon which their relationship with God depended, their hopes and dreams, the hopes and dreams of their kids and their grandkids, all of it came crashing down around them. And not only were they experiencing that sort of spiritual chaos and what felt like the death of hope for them, they were being physically sucked dry of resources of food and water and building supplies by a long-term siege from foreign powers. The Babylonians at the time, for, for, for years, had been taking over city after city after city in their country and in their land. And for the last year and a half, they had surrounded Jerusalem and sucked it dry with this long-term siege of warfare which meant everything came collapsing down around them. And at this point, they had tried everything that they knew to do. And things around them were so bleak that they began to wonder if even God had abandoned them. Maybe, maybe they were hopelessly beyond help. So they did, at this point, the only thing they knew how to do, which was to cry out to the Lord for help. Look at 5.1 with me. Lamentations 5.1. We're going to spend some time together, especially on 5.1, and then we'll move a little more quickly through the rest. But this is their cry out for help. Remember, O Lord, verse 1, remember, important word, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. The ignominy in many, the shame, the, uh, the destruction all around them. They're begging God here to remember them. They're saying, Lord, don't forget us. They were even wondering at this point if the tragedy that they were experiencing around them was because God had ultimately and finally abandoned them and, and judged them here. Perhaps this was the final judgment, they wondered. So, so this, this moment of reminding God this reminder to remember of sorts, them reminding God to remember them, isn't because, by the way, God you know, literally forgot. They didn't think that. It was because as they looked out of the destruction of their lives and the city and the temple, they thought to themselves, this is, this is so bad. <laughs> Perhaps this is the end of the world and we are being judged forever. So, so in their desperation, this low point, they call out to God using his own promise 
to keep them in his care and to provide for them. And they sort of turned it around in a sense and said, God, you promised. Remember? Remember, you promised. This is how you work. You're supposed to remember us. And they did that from this long history from the people of Israel of times when God had remembered his promise to them previously. It happens throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, this word remember. Uh, In Genesis, when judgment and destruction was all around because of the flood that God had sent, at the very turning point in the entire narrative of the flood, Genesis 8.1 says, but God remembered Noah. And in Scripture, when it speaks of God remembering, it's a way of saying, God is about to act on his promises. In Scripture, when it says God remembered, it means God's about to act on his promises. In Genesis 19, when God remembered Abraham, he saved Lot. In Genesis 30, when God remembered Rachel, she conceived. In Exodus 2, when the people of God were groaning because they were in slavery, they needed a deliverer, it said God remembered His covenant. He remembered His promise to them. And He delivered them. So, So God's remembering always implies His movement toward an object of His affection because of His promises. This is huge, friends. This is key. When Scripture says God remembers, it's because it's saying God moves toward the object of His affection because of His promise that's rooted in His perfections. Which means only steadfast love does the job, friends. We're getting ahead of ourselves. So, here they are, begging God. It's terrible around them. And they turn His promise back on Him and say, Remember? Remember us. Remember you said you'd remember? Now remember us, because it's this bad. It's this bad. And that's what the rest... Get ready for some fun scripture. That's what the rest of this chapter basically is. This is how ugly it is, God. Keep reading with me in verses 2 and following. They're basically saying, just look at all this destruction, Lord. Remember, remember us in all of this. Verse 2, our inheritance, meaning the promised land that they were to inherit as theirs from God, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. So what had been given to them by God, their land was now under foreign control, which is a way of saying they were foreigners in their own country. (laughs) Verse 3, We have become orphans, fatherless by war, death, starvation, in the siege. Their fathers uh, were dead, many of them. Our mothers are like widows, which means they have no one to care for them, no one to provide for them. Uh, The resources are being uh, taken away from them in the siege, whether they had husbands or not. So verse 4, we must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. It's a way of saying what used to be free for us because God provided it for us must now be purchased from foreigners who have control of it. That's not how it's supposed to be. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. This is where we get the phrase, no rest for the weary. There are a couple places in Scripture where we get that phrase. This is one of them. They need a break because the collapse just feels like it keeps coming and coming uh, and coming. And there's no end to it. There's no rest. It feels like no hope. The whole chapter 
much like the rest of Lamentations, except for a few key places. The whole chapter keeps expressing this, this feeling of collapse. It just keeps going and going. No rest for the weary. Pick it up in verse 15. More description like this. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. In other words, what used to bring joy no longer does. The crown has fallen from our head. It's a way of saying what we had been experiencing as sons and daughters of the the Most High God, what we used to experience as that status of being cared for and understanding His promises, that tangible experience of His blessings, the crown has now fallen off of our head. That sense of, of, of who they were is now gone. It says this, Woe to us. This is how they felt. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our hearts have grown dim. And here's the thing over which their heart is sick and over which their eyes fail. Verse 18, look at this. For Mount Zion, the place where the temple once stood in glory as a symbol of relationship with God, Mount Zion lies desolate, it says. Even even the temple has been abandoned. And look at this next phrase. This is, this is sort of the low point here in Lamentations. Jackals prowl over it. <laughs> Meaning this, this sacred place where they had relationship with God, where they met with God in the temple. And they experienced the sacrifice that showed them a picture of grace. But that temple is now ruled by animals. This, this, this sacred place where they met with God has been abandoned. It's been, it's been forgotten. Jackals prowl over it, it says. This is the low point for the people of God. Their identity, their sense of self, their understanding of who they were was marked by all this destruction and chaos and collapse around them. And then there's a note of hope. One little note of hope in the whole chapter. Look at verse 19. But you, O Lord. Anytime you come across two words like, but God, in Scripture, take note. Because things are about to make a turn. When the low point happens, when it feels like collapse, when there's no end to the problems, when the work doesn't work, when the marriage is tough, when the parenting seems impossible, whatever the circumstances that feel like the low point, that feel like jackals are prowling over me. (laughs) Remember, but God. But you, O Lord, you reign forever. In contrast to all that we see around us, instead of the total collapse, contrary to what we experience that feels like devastation and frustration and things not working, verse 19 says, You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. We're going to come back to verse 19 a little bit later. Um, But I want you to see 20 through 22 
It's more of this feeling of abandonment. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord. They're begging Him that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Life is kind of like this whole chapter, isn't it? Not to sound too morose. I mean, Lamentations just keeps coming and coming with the, with the feeling of collapse. Um, but to be honest, life can often feel like this whole chapter, like it's a, like it's a bleak picture and things are a mess, <laughs> except for that little verse 19 here and there, you know? Just little glimpses of the glory of God here and there. I think there's quite a few lessons we could draw from it. One is this. When life is ugly and it's a mess that you have no fix for, to whom do you turn? Where do you go? From whence does your help come? And until you get to the place of realizing that help comes from nowhere other than you, O Lord, (laughs) who endures forever, you're not going to have a good answer to this question of what do you do when life is ugly and it's a mess and you have no fix for it? Because when life is ugly, when it's a mess, when things aren't working right, when things are frustrating, when you work and work and work and you get little return, you have to understand that to be a son or daughter of God and understand who you're created to be is to beg for help in His promises alone. When you get to that place, you've got to learn to beg for God to remember His promises to you. We're going to show you a video here in just a second of someone in our congregation who experienced that place of, I've got nothing left. And the story of how God took her from that low point to using her in some powerful ways today. Let's watch this together. Hi, my name is Allie. And this is my story of how God took me from shame to grace. It was late one night a few months before my 22nd birthday. My boyfriend was asleep in the bedroom of my apartment in the projects. My children were in their rooms asleep. And I lay on the couch trying to silence my cries as I planned how I would end my life. I didn't know God. Didn't even know if I believed in his existence. But that night, I called out to him, God, if you're there, please help. It's not too far-fetched to say that within minutes of that prayer, I knew that there is a God and that he had heard me. I began to sense a presence in the apartment that night that I had never felt before. And I began to sense a change in my being that I hadn't experienced or that I hadn't experienced in a very long time. That change was hope. My reality that night as I lay on the couch and wept was that I was a 21-year-old 
divorced mother of two children who were already at that time six and five years old. And I had nothing to offer them. I had no hope of ever being any good for them or anyone else. In fact, my impoverished soul had been running on empty long before they were even born. And their reality had been nothing but poverty as well. Literally, emotionally, spiritually. We were all three barely surviving. How does one get to this place of shame and brokenness? It is a path all too familiar to far too many children. A daunting and lonely path of unpredictable, anxious days of a mother with a mental illness. Sleepless, fear-filled nights as parents rage about money, the kids, adultery, divorce. Being in the way of step-parents with their own agendas. Every loss and grief navigated alone because those who should be able to guide you are too absorbed in their own pain and brokenness to notice yours. Neglect and abandonment that leaves one feeling like an outsider, unworthy of love, vulnerable and unprotected. And then there is the overwhelming path that was mine. A mom who believed that her marriage would have been fixed and my dad would have never left if I'd only been born a boy. A mom who saw only two options to fix my pregnancy at the age of 14, abortion or emancipation and marriage. I chose the latter. That fix meant dropping out of school the middle of my freshman year, not one, but two pregnancies, two babies before my 17th birthday, more domestic violence, drugs, alcohol, poverty. All of those experiences, the emotional neglect of my mother, the abandonment of my father, had created in me a vacuum where my sense of identity should have been. And that vacuum sucked in all of the darkness and sin of the world around me and formed my identity as it was mirrored to me through the eyes of those whom it drew in. Hungry eyes of empty souls looked at me and saw their prey, an object to be exploited. Angry eyes looked at me and saw an excuse, justification for an unbridled tongue and a violent temper. Haughty eyes looked at me and saw disgrace and turned away in disgust. Apathetic eyes looked at me and saw nothing worth saving, nothing worth fighting for. And the trusting eyes of my children who looked to me for security saw in me instead darkness, confusion, fear, and chaos. On that night, when I called out to God, my soul had nothing to reflect but 
the shattered identity of worthlessness and shame. But on that night, when I called out to him, I began to see myself through the eyes of grace. I had no idea where to start, but in the days and weeks ahead, that spark of hope became a quest for light and hunger and thirst for the knowledge of God and his word. I didn't even own a Bible at that point, but the presence of God in the apartment that night confirmed for me that, without a doubt, he is real. And I had begun a personal relationship with him. Over the coming weeks and months, that hope became an unwavering trust. I began to believe what I was reading in his word, that he had known me and formed me in my mother's womb, as the psalmist said, and that he knew everything about my life prior to that night of me inviting in his presence. The awesome truth began to dawn on me that the creator of the universe created me for a reason and that his son, a perfect being, counted me worthy of the cost of coming to this earth to live and to die. As my soul began to reflect my new identity of Christ in me, I believe that just as God had known me and formed me in my mother's womb, he had known and formed my children in my womb, and that one day my children would look to me and see the power of God to change lives that where they had seen darkness, they would see light. Where they had seen confusion, they would see conviction. Where they had seen fear, they would see courage. Where they had seen chaos, they would see trust in him and his plan for me and for them. Thank you, Allison, for sharing your story with us. <clears throat> she said something at the end there about the power of God to change lives. Um, we live in a world that wants to know if, if this God is real. Um, and the evidence is in the lives of people he changes. <laughs> the life Allison lived... Um, it was a tough, difficult place um, that understood what this collapse of lamentations feels like. And if you want to know if God's real, um, you may not know this, but uh, we have a woman who we call Director of Connections at First Christian Church um, whose main job... <laughs> is to help people connect with the body of Christ that changes lives. And her name is Allison Stolenmeyer. You're not left to navigate this alone, just like she said she felt then. You're here among a body of believers that is ready to welcome you into a kingdom where who we are is who God says we are. Don't let others' sin define you.
you look in the face of sin that comes to you out of others' mouths or the behavior around you, and you say, you go back to where you started. Because I stand before a cross that defines me. To understand grace is to understand that your hope comes from Jesus alone. Friends, that's what we're here to celebrate. And the evidence of a God who is real is in the people around us who instead of speaking sin about who we are, speak love and grace and mercy and truth about who God says you are and why He created you. That's what this is. That's what we do. We speak to one another and celebrate the truth that we worship a God whose steadfast love endures forever. In the middle of this huge book of despair and defeat and destruction, Lamentations 3, 19 and following uses a word that I just used there, steadfast love, which is defined as God loving out of who He is as a perfect God who made us. And it's His promise to, to, to make us into the people He created us to be. It's a promise to give us deliverance when it feels like there is no hope. It's a promise to love us and to take us with Him in eternity forever despite what those around us say. When, when it feels like condemnation, when it feels like there's no more hope, when it feels like what you hear about yourself is judgment and condemnation and you're filled with fear, look and say, Jesus tells me who I am, friends. Allison is one of many people sitting around you uh, who, uh, who evidences that God changes lives and takes us from this place um, that was shame and defeat and emptiness to a place of grace where we only stand in the steadfast love uh, that is proven to us on the cross. So friends, in just a moment, we're going to uh, invite you to... Uh, to respond to the truth of the gospel we just talked about there in the last 30 to 60 seconds here. Uh, the gospel is called good news uh, because it comes to us in that time where we need a but God. <laughs> where we need a verse 19 to say it's the steadfast love of the Lord uh, that comes to us. So there are a couple ways to respond for us here at First Christian. Uh, we call this the invitation um, because it's a time to respond to the truth of the steadfast love of the Lord enduring forever. So if you're uh, looking for a church home and you're a baptized believer in Christ, uh, if you're looking for a church home and you're a immersed believer in Jesus, for us to be a member is to stand up here and just to say, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, which is your verbal commitment to us that we take as a part of that covenant to you for your growth in the body. Maybe God's been stirring your heart and speaking to you and saying, it's time for you, it's time for you to make that step of a profession of faith in Christ. To do that here publicly uh, is to stand, and uh, if you've never been baptized, uh, it's a part of the process uh, for us. Uh, it's, it's a symbol of going down into the waters, uh, which say, death to that old shame-based person. 
being raised to new life as a grace-based believer in Christ. Uh, lastly, finally, if, if this vocabulary about Jesus and sin and salvation and, uh, it may be new for you, maybe you have questions about what it means to follow God, uh, we'd love to have a conversation with you. We'd love to start that dialogue with you. Um, the invitation is extended even to you. Uh, if that's you, maybe you need prayer. Um, we have people ready in what we call the care room just down the hall there, uh, ready to talk with you, to pray with you, uh, to discuss that with you. So um, that's the invitation for us as we stand and as we sing together. Save the rest.